Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. On this Wednesday evening, Chris Stewart in our Cape Town studio in a couple of minutes' time, updating us with what's happened on markets. And it's been a continued sell-off on the JSE. Many emerging markets seeing sharp sell-offs. At least the currency regained some of its mojo today. It's one of the better performing emerging market currencies relative to the likes of Turkey, relative to, to many emerging market currencies currencies at the moment. We'll also look at the risk inherent in Italy. You would think Italy's a million miles away, the place of the origin of pasta, the origin of, of, of great food and some, some exciting motor cars. I'm not going to say good, but exciting motor cars. Um, fourth biggest economy in Europe and it's actually posing a bit of a threat to the EU itself. Lots of politics, lots of concerns around that. We'll talk about that. Uh, a big five things that you need to know about Italy's crisis coming up later on on The Money Show. The spa chief executive, the guy who founded Techie Town. He's in studio tonight. He went into a deal with Steinoff and now wants out of a deal with Steinoff. How, why and wherefore coming up in a moment. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Fast fact question for you this evening on 31702 and 31567. Who has finally agreed to sell manufactured diamonds? Not the natural kind. And it's wrong to call them, yeah, they are fake, they're not real diamonds, but they're manufactured diamonds. Who's finally agreed to sell manufactured diamonds? 31702, 31567. If you want to have a nice warm-up to this Friday's Brutal Biz Quiz, give me an answer. Give me an answer, do. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Well, on last night's Money Show, we tackled the complexity of Steinoff Africa Retail's attempt to distance itself from 70% shareholder, 70% shareholder Steinoff. It raised capital last week to rid itself of debt and try and revert to the Pepcor brand and hope that everybody forgets its sad and tragic story. Controversially, shareholders are going to have to fund guarantees for executive bonuses, which Star told us last night are contractually required. Tonight, it's the turn of Brown van Hastien, the founder of Techie Town, South Africa's entrepreneur of the year 2011. Remember the story? Brown worked for his mom's boutique in Plett. One day, offered a consignment. I think it was of Caterpillar Boots. It was Caterpillar Boots, Brown? Yeah, your memory is quite good. It just wasn't Plato McBay, it was Mossel Bay. Mossel Bay, come there. on, it's <laughs> close. It's, it's 100Ks, what's 100Ks? Um, yeah, uh, Caterpillar Boots, okay, I've got that part right. You mortgaged your house, you got the million rand you needed to buy the boots, you set about selling them at a discount, you made some money, you built a reputation for being able to sell hard-to-sell shoes, and Techie Town was born. You, you ran a single store for years, you then began expanding, and then suddenly Steinoff bought you. And the plan, as I remember it, was to roll out techie towns like Steinoff and like Pepcor had done through Eastern Europe and the UK. And you were going to become this, this, global, this global retailer. Well, yeah, that was the plan. But uh, things don't always uh, pans out like you uh, think it will. 
Um, yeah, sadly, we had this big implosion, and uh, a lot have happened since then. And, uh, yeah, we've obviously also taken legal advice. It seems like we've been paid with monopoly money, sadly. But uh, we keep our heads high. Uh, but sadly, you know, we thought that we could make, um, we would could carry on uh, amongst the management of STAR. And um, we can exercise our talents there and see to what extent we can have success there. But uh, we, uh, after the implosion, we uh, started to get uh, alienated and it became totally untenable. And uh, it will be interesting to see what happens in the next couple of weeks. We have a very hostile management and, uh, you know, we've got 1,100 people, part of our uh, staff uh, trustee who is also part owners of the people that sold to Steinhoff. So hopefully we can get some resolution soon. Um, it's clearly very difficult, clearly a mess. You don't sound well. You're sitting in our Cape Town studio. You sound quite sick. I mean, are you stressed beyond belief? <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't sound that stressed, but it is, a un- it is a very unpleasant, unfortunate situation, you know, and even what makes it worse, you know, is um, where we f- find ourselves amongst the old PEPCOR structure, you know, we, uh, you know, we've learned certain ways of doing things, and we walked into a situation where they do it absolutely the opposite way. And uh, obviously it was a situation of water and oil. Hence, totally impossible to, to work in that environment. Therefore, uh, we have obviously taken some legal advice. Um, and we are taking action both against uh, Steinhoff, but we're also having a legal action against Star. So a lot of attorneys will be very busy. And rich. In the next couple of days. And rich as a result. Well, how long were you friends with Marcus Uester before you did the Techie Town deal? Yeah, probably not too long. Uh, I guess about a year, year and a half. You know, we met out on the race course. We have a mutual passion. And uh, he one day uh, uh, at a function asked me after he noticed our actors transaction. You know, he asked me what our plans were. And I explained to him, I guess we would probably see if we can venture into Africa after which he invited me uh, to uh, after the Rugby World Cup of 2015 to take me to Poland. And we went around there for about three days, and I realized, and I think he realized, that we could uh, do what uh, Pep and Co. have achieved in Poland. And I realized there's a massive opportunity there, and I think that was part of the reason why uh, he was very keen to do the deal at the time. You did the deal. Um, it was a deal worth 3.2 billion rand. Five out of six shareholders um, accepted Steinhoff shares as payment. I'm assuming you were one of those five. Yeah, we were. The the one that uh, got cash and how the deal was done, we obviously had uh, Actus as a private equity partner that, owned, that purchased or acquired 42% of us two years prior to the Steinhoff transaction. And uh, part of the deal was that uh, you know the five uh, the balance of the five is 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 uh, myself and uh, and management and our employees um and uh, the part of the deal was that we take shares and that we lock ourselves in for a period of 3 years which is like the normal way of of doing these type of transactions and we were quite happy to do it that way uh, we were happy that uh, you know we we following in the footsteps of a man like Dr. Visa um, I mean, we realized, we, we accepted that a company like Deloitte is, is being, the, being the auditors uh, would not, <laughs> you know, uh, miss major things that they have 
uh, like it now turned out to to miss, and uh, we didn't really foresee, you know, the catastrophe that that had followed. Um, it's you 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 did the deal. You went in with your eyes wide open. You clearly did some risk management about this. It wasn't just just seeing dollar signs. You you you, you did get good advice. You you went into no, this uh, yes, aware that it could go wrong. Yeah, look, we um, we've obviously have used the best legal advice in Weber Wenzel, which is one of the top companies in South Africa, and uh, we've looked at all the angles that we thought that we can have access to. But I'm sure, like Dr. Visa, I mean, we've all been surprised, you know, with with the total outcome, and I mean, we're all waiting on this PwC report because so far it is just. Uh, you know, difficult to believe, you know, how the peanut gallery has already made conclusions and they know what went wrong without any hard evidence or facts in front of us. The, the one thing we have as fact is the SMS that Marcus Uesta sent out on the day that he resigned in which he, he, he says, whatever's wrong, it's my fault, nobody else's fault. It's all me. Yeah, he admitted he made some mistakes, you know, and uh, but we want to see what those mistakes was. And then we obviously want to also see... You know, how on earth it's possible that these mistakes happen with only one man out of 130,000 employees uh, are aware of it. You know, how how on earth, you know, can one man, you know, be the author of s- such a calamity? Is Marcus a crook? No, not in my book. So you're still friends? I have no... He might have his day in court and then he'll have to explain to, to the judge of, of the court... I have no information at hand to, at this point in time, to, and either before or after the deal, that made me regret what I have done. So, I mean, do you and Marcus still see each other? You know, Marcus did one thing. He came to apologize to me and he sent me a text message that uh, he said he'll never be able to face me or look me in the eye again. And I just said in the book that is directed me in my life has taught me to forgive people uh, 470 times seven times you know and and that's the way i i live my life um have, have you had other contact other than the sms and the apology yeah we've had uh, we've we've had contact yes you know but obviously it's a very awkward time you know and 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 you know it's it's a matter of trying to see where to go from here and uh, we're obviously just trying to stay calm given the circumstances, you know. And uh, But as I said, we've been actually more aggrieved by what happened at Star, you know, and also if you see what happened well, look, in I'll, the last I'll, few I'll, days. I'll, no? get, I'll get to Star in just a minute. Um, a lot of people are really interested to know where Marcus Uesta is and what he's getting up to. Most people I talk to distance themselves. It's a bit like St. Peter on uh, the night before the Garden of Gethsemane and sort of saying, I don't know who that guy is. People mm. are distancing themselves and backpedaling away from Marcus. You're not doing that. Yeah, I've I've been through this before, you know. I was a neighbor of Hansi Cronier, so and I was the only guy that was willing to play golf with him after he had his troubles. You know, but as I say, Marcus might have his day in court and the judge can decide. I'm not a judge and I'm not God, so not not my place to judge. But you did describe that you did a deal for monopoly money, which you're trying now to exorcise yourself from because the original deal was with Steinoff and then at some point last year, um you were moved from Steinoff into Steinoff Africa retail, correct? Yeah. It's very simple, you know. They uh, uh, it was the wish of of Steinoff and Dr. Visser to um, 
put all these African assets in one vehicle. So there was a restructure, and we were part of that restructure. You know, now it's been seen as a total independent situation where the one has got to do has got nothing to do with the other, but still, seventy one percent of the shares is held by Steinoff. The people of Steinoff is on the star board. The people of Steinoff is the people that appointed the current uh, management. You know, but 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 still, they they claim to have uh, nothing to do with each other. Okay, so now you stayed incentivized. The deal was still with Steinoff. You were still paid in Steinoff shares, even though you were transferred into Steinoff Africa Retail. Correct. Well, that's what, what that what was the deal, and that, mm. and and then we went into Star. You know, and we all became employees of Star. But we also part of our transaction was an earnout. That becomes due three years from now. Yeah. But as it so happened, that star received our business, they received our stock, our shops, our management, mm-hmm. our assets, our liabilities, but they would not accept our earnings. So after this whole calamity, they do not even want to honor a performance-based incentive, but still they go and uh, settle their gambling debt uh, from a decision from inside. So you are saying that you've been screwed over by Steinoff Africa Retail, that they're looking after themselves and that you are being hung out to dry effectively. That is my experience, you know. And, uh, you know, we, we, we even after the calamity, you know, we tried our best to bring our part. You know, I was appointed as the chairman of properties. I did my very best, and I think I had great success as I did in Town. We've also been given the responsibility to look after the speciality business who under the reins of Peter Erasmus and the Pepcor boys built up a loss of 546 million rand. We've since, me and our team has taken that over and in the first quarter, yeah. all four of those brands being Shoe City, John Craig, Duns and Refinery has returned a profit, something that they could not achieve in 12 years. What are you wanting out of the standoff that you were engaged in with Steinoff Africa Retail? People you feel have treated you badly. Yeah, they've also, in the meantime, they've just, you know, laterally removed me from everything. You know, they've uh, just removed me from the board, from the, the speciality board. They've just removed my position uh, as chairman of uh, properties. So I'm pretty much without a business, without a job today as it stands. But we'll see what happens in future because, we, as I say, we have a very hostile management team behind me and uh, hopefully we can get some sort of res- resolution before this thing gets totally out of hand. I mean, what, what is Techie Town worth? I mean, the businesses are operating. If I drive around, I see Techie Towns all over the place. The doors are open. People are buying shoes. It, it's a functioning business. It's, yeah, Techie Town as a business is, 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 is still doing very well, but I cannot see that that would last too long because if current management you know, follow me, that business will disintegrate. And that that is fact. But I think if we go back to our own ways, I think the Pepcor boys want to run Pep and Ackermans. They must give JD back to the furniture boys and that we must do our thing. And we must take it from there. And I think we must put the staff first in all these, in all the cases and not the management as such. You say you don't regret doing the deal with Steinoff. How can you possibly not regret it? Um, well, one can never look back. Now, I didn't pretty much say I don't regret it. You know, it's it's a matter of things didn't work out. I mean, at the time, I believe I did the right thing. And with the information at hand 
I believed I did as good as I could. I mean, I had private equity partners. They were happy. You know, I had partners in the business. They were happy. Obviously, it turned out badly. But sometimes in life, you take risks and it doesn't work out the way you think it must, like in this case. But, you know, I'm happy to write off 1.8 billion. But to be alienated by people that not that has not built their own businesses, that's a bitter pill to swallow. Yet you remain on good terms with Marcus Eusta. You don't blame him. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm astounded by it because everybody's very yeah. happy usually to throw mud and point fingers. And you're yeah. not doing that. Yeah, well, I've explained to you, you know, it's not my place to judge him. You know, the judge of the court will do that. If, if, if he's been found guilty of whatever crime he's been accused of, which we're all dying to know what he's done. We're all waiting for this PwC report. And you haven't asked him? He actually told me that I can ask him whatever, whatever I want to, but, you know, there was no ways to alienate him or myself. You know, for me, you know, he's also in a difficult space. As I say, he's not having an easy time. Um, I had no reason to ask him. My thanks to you for coming in this evening, Bram van Hasten. A tragic story. The founder of Techie Town, who is arguing very strongly this evening that the business is being removed from him. He thinks he's been badly treated, getting legal advice, going to court, waiting for PwC report, waiting for audited financials like everybody else is connected to the Steinloff story, but refusing. And this is really interesting. And maybe admirable. What do you think? 31702-31567. To not throw mud at the one guy everybody else is blaming for the calamity. The Money Show. The Markets. Chris Stewart from Investec Asset Management. I'm not sure at what point of the conversation you walked in on the studio in Cape Town uh, with the founder of Techie Town, Bram van Hastien. But it sounds like, I mean, we know it's an unholy mess, but it's getting messier and messier and messier, Chris Stewart. Yeah, Bruce, uh, I just caught the tail end of that. Um, and I don't pretend to be anything like as exciting as your formal, former interview. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. But, uh, yeah, it's it's messy and has the potential to get messier, uh, which is why I guess coming up with some sort of residual value for Steinhoff has been so difficult uh, because we don't even know at this stage exactly what Steinhoff looks like. We've got a variety of former deals now being disputed uh, as a result of, I guess, the currency uh, of those deals now being as you point out, being discussed as in the terms of monopoly money. Uh, and it uh, yeah, it remains to be seen how this one plays out. But, you know, a very, very difficult asset to value at this stage. And sad. Entrepreneurs getting burned. I mean, people who started up a great business in the form of Techie Town, uh, feeling hard done by Martin Tag on Twitter, says to me, it sounds like Sign of Africa Retail treating them very badly. But how can he forgive you, Esther? What WTF, what does that stand for, Chris Stewart? Oh, where to financially? Okay. Um, and, from here, yes, yes. And Doug Walker, uh, Techie Town deserves to thrive. The founders should rekindle the vision and passion. It, I mean, he just sounds, he's, he's gone 10 rounds uh, with Money Mayweather. That's what he sounds like he's done. Suntum, tell me about Suntum. Uh, controversy around the chief executive wage package yesterday. Share price today, well and firmly over 300 bucks a share. It's doing well. Yeah, but very positive trading update from Suntum again today, talking to uh, an underwriting margin, and that's one of the key performance indicators that I guess w- is within the control of management, uh, up above the uh, target range of 4 to 8%, so very, very strong underwriting margins across the business, largely, uh, I guess, as a result of good underwriting, they'll claim, but also the absence of weather-related disasters over this period, which had become, uh, I guess, something only too common over the prior couple of reporting periods. So that's reasonably positive. The downside, I guess, is that premium growth will be modest, and that's really a function of the environment. And then the investment return on shareholders' funds and the investment return on the uh, float uh, somewhat negatively impacted by investment markets, and that's really something that's largely beyond their control at this 
stage, Bruce. Mm-hmm. Spa, um, finally getting some positive news out of the big acquisitions they made in, in parts of Europe. Yeah, we've got all sorts of good news today. So Suntime Trading Update was positive. The SPA uh, results, this is their first half results for the period ending 31 March. That's looking pretty good across the board as well. Um, you, you know, Switzerland, which I think you're alluding to, I, uh, at least turning a small profit from, from being loss-making. It's not particularly significant in the overall um, you know, in the overall scheme of things, but at least they are starting to rationalise their footprint there, closing down some of the unprofitable stores, uh, and mending what, in retrospect, was probably a fairly poor acquisition. Uh, in Ireland, that business continues to go uh, pretty well, uh, assisted, I guess, by rand weakness against the euro of the period, so sort of three percent turnover growth in Europe. Uh, in euros translates into substantially better than that in rand, so that's giving them decent growth. And then the domestic operation in a very, very tough environment, at least showing an improvement on last year. You're now starting to see positive like-for-like uh, like physical sales, uh, which was something absent over the last year. Not particularly uh, stellar, but at least they are selling more physical units of stuff per unit of footprint uh, than they were in the previous financial year. Bruce. Yeah, Graham O'Connor, the chief executive on The Money Show, the next 12, 13 minutes or so. And NAMPAC, anything to write home about? Yeah, I mean, NAMPAC's, you know, it's, it's something of a mixed grill as usual from NAMPAC. Uh, lots lots to, to digest um, and a mixed performance. But, but generally speaking, given where market expectations had been, it's probably a little bit better. Uh, the positives to be drawn out of it, I guess, are that, you know, ongoing movements to restructure the business. Uh, they've now uh, indicated that they will sell their glass business. Uh, that's still got, uh, I think, a balance sheet valuation of about 2.5 billion rand. The market capitalization of the whole company now only 10. So if they can realize that for something near the value that they hold it on balance sheet for, uh, that would be positive. Uh, they're getting money out of Nigeria. That's a good thing. Uh, they can't get money out of Angola and Zimbabwe. And I guess they've uh, uh, you know, put, put a line in the sand and said that if uh, it becomes uh, or remains as difficult as it is to get foreign exchange out of those particular countries, they're going to curtail their operations quite substantially because they can't continue uh, to finance those operations uh, but not uh, have the ability to extract capital or extract profits from those countries. Uh, and the local business, I think, a little bit better than expected. So, you know, expectations for NAMPAC were low. Uh, profits are growing. The market was expecting profits to go backwards. I'm now excluding the discontinued operations of the glass business. So generally speaking, relative to horrible expectations, a reasonable result from NAMPAC, uh, but it remains one where there are fairly substantial risks still, Bruce. Chris Stewart with Investec Asset Management on a Wednesday night. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. A lot of retail is really struggling in South Africa at the moment, so much so that we're going to see uh, property companies come under pressure as they cut down on their format sizes and they become smaller and they become more efficient and they um, take up a lot less space. And so the property sector is being affected by it. But there's a retailer that boasts 2,184 stores, at least at the end of March this year. There were 2,184 stores in its network. Which retailer is it? 115 more than last year. I mean, this time last year, the economy was in trouble. Private Gordon had just been fired again. Um, And that was feeling really gloomy. But in Southern Africa, this retailer opened up 115 more stores, taking it to 2,184. Can you take us three, 
two, one. Well, the answer, of course, is spa for those of you who are uh, in touch with your retail side. Graham O'Connor, chief executive of spa on the line to us. Spa wholesaler rather than retailer. How many of these big um, sort of warehouses do you have across the country now, Graham O'Connor? Good evening, Bruce. Nice to talk to you again, and thanks for that uh, positive introduction. The, um, we, we have uh, seven distribution centres around the country which supply our stores, um, and those um, distribution centres are operating very well. Uh, and your European business, does it work on the same basis? You've got distribution centres that then feed into um, the spa networks in Switzerland and in Ireland? Yeah, exactly the same, albeit the stores are much smaller over there. The very convenience-based format in in Ireland and in, in the southwest of England, our Irish business, and then in Switzerland, the same. Bigger distribution centre, but um, small stores um, as well. I mean, that's the the lifestyle there, of course, as well. But you, you have you cracked the, the the small store format in South Africa? When one looks around the garage forecourts and spa, I certainly can't visualise a presence at the forecourt. You're more community based, um, and then the super spas, of course, are much bigger in in, in shopping centres. Um, you've sort of got mid sized to large size waxed. Have you got the small format stores in South Africa sorted? We think we do at last. We've fiddled around for a long time with uh, Shell doing joint a sort of trial period, and we're delighted that those trials have turned out really well. And uh, so we, we've actually got 22 Spa Express stores in the forecourt, and they have proved to be outstanding. The results of the fuel t- takeoff have been very good from Shell's point of view, so they're delighted. And from my own point of view, the growth in the stores has been outstanding. So we've got 22, we'll have 30 by year end and next year we'll probably move that up to 50 or 60 so rolling those out very quickly now that we've got to act together I mean, as south africa's grown up i mean you know, petrol was allowed to be sold past five o'clock in the afternoon 20 <laughs> years ago um, yeah. but so much retail has moved to the forecourt and i mean personally i find myself choosing my stops as per the retail experience at those stores it's a really good symbiotic relationship between retailer and fuel retailer very much so. And, you know, we sit on the fence because we want to protect our existing retailers. But the fact is, as you say, the forecourt format has taken off and, and uh, plenty of our opposition have gone into those stores with great success. And so we followed suit and, and we've picked a really good partner with Shell. So that's exciting going forward. Well, that, that risk of cannibalising, you referred to it a moment ago. If you're not going to do it, then um, we may very well see Woolies do it or one of the others um, at a near, nearby a spa. So do you give the closest spa to the petrol station a chance to, to set up a, a small format store there first? No, unfortunately we don't because the, the petrol formats are basically in place. And so the local stores... Um, if they're going to be affected, we'll assist the local store. But generally, and um, we've seen that where forecourts come into play, the impact on the local store isn't massive in any of it. Um, Ireland holding up well. Switzerland making a small profit after a rocky start. Are, are you through the worst in Switzerland? Yeah, well, let's just talk about Ireland first. I mean, Ireland's been absolutely outstanding year in and year out. And, and I need to just remind people that when we bought it, everyone thought we bought a bunch of fish and chips and sandwich shops. And fortunately, that wasn't the case, and we knew it. But their results in their fifth year contributing to us have been absolutely outstanding. Um, as far as Switzerland goes, the guys, they've done a fantastic job 
Um, and the profits haven't flowed through as fast as we hoped. But um, I think we've turned the corner. Most definitely on the retail front, we have. The retailers on the ground, we've given them an extra 1.5% um, bottom line uh, for their businesses, and they're very positive. So um, that's very positive. Done a lot of good things in terms of the distribution center, in terms of, of our deliveries to the stores, in terms of the retail format, as I've described, putting in food on the go, putting in coffee shops. So that's a massive plus for the, for the Swiss consumer. Um, Stephen Saad runs a very successful global pharmaceutical business out of KZN, which, I mean, forgive me for making this observation, it's not the epicentre of the business world. Um, uh, you guys are becoming... I, I thought it was, Bruce, <laughs> well, it? Clearly it works for you. I mean, you, you managed to run Switzerland from there and managing to run Ireland. And even looking at Sri Lanka run from KZN. Are you ever going to have to shift HQ somewhere else as you increasingly globalise? No, I don't think so. I mean, we... You know, 70% of our business is here in South Africa, and we focus very strongly on that. And we want to be careful that we don't take expertise out of our South African business and weaken that. And we managed to, to balance that well. I'm delighted that we opened our first store in Sri Lanka um, a month ago. I'm actually going on, on Monday to go and see the new store, um, which I'm excited about. Uh, and, I mean, you're building the building material sector in South Africa struggling generally. Build, it seems to be holding up. And certainly tops having a very positive uh, influence on the uh, on your retail partners in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, on the builder side, it's been we're very pleasantly surprised about the, the, the drive there. But it's, you know, the passionate drive of our retailers, the independents who run those businesses. That's helped enormously in South Africa. Um, and long may that last. As far as tops go, certainly when times are bad, people have a drink and when times are good, even more. So that's been a fantastic format for us. Um, and, and the liquor business has been outstanding um, in the spa stable. Graham O'Connor, thank you. From the epicentre of KZN Business in Durban, Spa Group Chief Executive Graham O'Connor. Quick question for you. What South African food would you think you're not likely to find being sold in Norway. Mopani worms? Yeah, okay. But another South African food, a delicacy for many people, a, a basic food stuff for others, certainly a traditional South African food in Norway. What's unlikely to be big in Norway? 31702-31567. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Welcome to The Money Show. So when someone's really good at selling, you might say they sell ice to the Inuits. Uh, provide somebody with a product, and they can sell it to anybody. They really can. Um, you can take coal to Newcastle, and you can sell coal to people in Newcastle. That's another one. But imagine being able to sell something completely foreign in a country which has got absolutely no heritage of the product that you offer. Imagine that. So what would that product be? Tsepo, you're right. Uh, Bruce says he can't see pup being sold in Norway. Tumisang, Kevin, and yep, Peter and Greenside, Biltong is likely to be rare in Norway. And it is Biltong. Matthew Doms is the co-founder of Doms Biltong in Norway. Please explain to me. Help me out here, Matthew Doms, how you managed to sell Biltong to Norwegians, of all people. <laughs> well, it was uh, a bit of an idea from a friend, of, a friend of mine who started a company and they had a big kitchen with a bit of space. And, and they said, why don't you guys come in and make that South African beef jerky stuff? And uh, I was like, well, why not? So I went in there and we made a, 
made a batch of biltong when my dad taught me back in the day. And then uh, everyone liked it. Um, so from then on, I spoke to my brother, and he was at a bit of a turning point. He wasn't sure if he was going to go back to university or what he was going to do. And then I said, well, why don't you come over here and start a business? No, Norwegians, lots of pickled fish and herrings and elk and things like that. Is there any tradition of dried meat being sold in Norway? Yes, they, but they do a lot of salting and smoking of the uh, of sheep, yeah. lamb especially, and um, pork as well. Okay, I mean, so, so what, what is so, the offering uh, that you you've taken to the Norwegians? Uh, well, basically, it's uh, without all that salt that is used to cure the meat. So um, it's a lot less salt that you're having to eat. Um, secondly, it's, uh, we're using a local beef, local beef product uh, from the local farmers. Um, and then it's something with less fat as well. So it's a lot healthier. Um, and, uh, of course, very high in protein. Uh, we, we, great for the beer. <laughs> we, we, know, we know all of these things, but Norwegians traditionally don't. So how do you market something foreign in a place like Norway, especially with a name like Biltong? Do you call it Biltong, or is there a Norwegian word for it? No, we, we kept the word as, um, the, of course, there are some Norwegians that love visiting South Africa, so um, they are like in, instant customers. Um, but this is kind of like our, our um, challenge at the moment because we're still a startup company, um, so at the moment, we we aren't doing much marketing and our, our sales are surprisingly good for the amount of marketing we're doing. Um, but this is our next step. Mm. At the moment, we're, uh, we're in a competition called Angel Challenge. Um, so we're in the finals and we can win up to 800,000 kroner in investment. Uh, that, that's nearly a million rand. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a decent amount of money. Yeah. It's about a million rand or there? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then... We've also found another group of investors through the competition. So we, now we're getting some help from some, from some uh, national television stars and some um, experienced businessmen in the field. I mean, when you started this, was this just a really good means to fund an adventure lifestyle? Because Norway, very outdoorsy. You both like, you and your brother both like paragliding. You like uh, canoeing and paddling. Um, you like the lifestyle that Norway presents. Did you think to yourselves, yeah, this will keep funding it? And kind of has it taken over your life? Um, yeah, I guess so. It's, uh, it's something I also enjoy. My dad used to do a lot of hunting and uh, and I... Of course, and I enjoy a braai and I enjoy my meat. So uh, why not uh, work for myself and be my own boss and and uh, really put the effort in and get the get the hopefully get the reward. <laughs> I mean, you talk about yourselves being a startup and you're surprised by the volumes that you're moving. Are you able to keep up with demand? Are you at a point yet where you're beginning to worry that either this thing is going to get too big too fast or won't get big enough too fast? Um, right now, we are almost uh, at maximum kind of capacity. Um, but this is just because we're doing markets almost weekly. Um, and we are in the process of upscaling already. So um, it's just a matter of time until we'll be able to produce a whole lot more and we'll be ready for that. Markets are great for, for new product, though, because people can touch, smell, feel, taste, uh, a sample, and markets are, are great for that. In Norway, of course, a very strong heritage and market culture. 
Yeah, indeed. We we're joined the Bundens market, which is called um, which is basically means farmers market. Um, just a whole lot of great people and positive atmosphere and and uh, lots of good food too. Uh, and and so the next step: get outside funding, grow this thing, and the that whole Scandinavia region. It's very wealthy. It's one of the wealthiest places in the world. Would you look beyond Norway? Is there appetite outside Norway for built on? Yes, I think we will we will take Norway and then we will look at Scandinavia and Europe as well. I don't see why not. <laughs> Matthew Doms on the line just from Norway this evening, South African co-founder and co-owner of Doms Biltong with his brother. I, mean, I, I remember living in London a long time ago. There was a, butch, a butcher in Richmond who made Biltong and he had a very big South African clientele. That whole southwest London has got lots of South Africans. Um, and I'm not sure where it sort of expanded dramatically past uh, you know, the South African community in the UK, but it's an interesting and courageous and fascinating uh, perspective all the way from Norway. Matthew Doms sending Biltong to the Norwegians. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Brian on the SMS line, thank you. Bad Bruce. Uh, lots of you getting the fast fact question right this evening, by the way. Apenda and uh, Bati van Gran and Sanguma Maredi. Um, absolutely right. Which company has finally agreed to sell manufactured diamonds? That company is De Beers. You think, hold on a second. De Beers, manufactured diamonds. Uh, and rather than wait billions of years for them to be formed in the bowels of the earth and then gradually make their way up into the crust where the diamonds are mined or, or spewed into rivers and then uh, go and uh, mine for them and dredge at, at uh, river mouths. They can almost be 3D printed in a lab. It's not only quicker, but it's a lot cheaper as well. I remember chatting to Nicky Oppenheimer about this years ago. He said, no, no, zero interest. They do industrial manufactured diamonds, but not for the retail market. They, you know, this is, um, you know, a diamond is forever, and a synthetic diamond just isn't a diamond. That was his stance at the time. Of course, now the Oppenheimers are no longer the big shareholders in De Beers, and so the management team at De Beers is saying, yeah, we'll make these synthetic diamonds not only for industrial customers, but also to sell them as entry-level jewellery. They're big and they're sparkly, competing with the crystals market, I suppose, the Swarovski crystal. If you're interested in how to make a diamond, SMS me now on 31702, 31567. If we get enough responses, we'll talk to De Beers about it tomorrow. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Okay, so I think consensus is that you want to know more about how to make diamonds. Okay. Tikiso, um, Lefifi, he is very keen. Oh, Pat, oh, we have lots of you. Um, very keen. Lot, very keen. So keen. Excellent. Um, De Beers, I'm sure that they will explain to us, not the recipe. We understand that they, they're not going to say to us two parts of carbon and 54 parts of sparkle. Um, but we're keen to learn more about this. So let's see if we can get um, some sort of idea as to how this process works and whether or not it undermines. Can we use the term undermines De Beers in any way? <laughs> undermines. The Money Show. Business unusual. Oh, Colin Cows, pull yourself together. It's not that funny. Now, listen, can monopolies ever be good? Um, I ask this of you, Colin Cows, because we know in South Africa we constrained 
by ESCOM as an energy monopoly. For years, we were constrained by Telcom as a telecommunications monopoly. And look what's happened to telecommunications with the explosion of cell phones and, and competition uh, in the telecommunications sector. SABC had monopoly on every word that was broadcast in South Africa. And th- look where that got us. Monopolies are Satan's tool on earth. I mean, that's what a lot of people believe. Colin Cullis, is there any reason to suggest that a monopoly could be a good thing? I wouldn't make very strong arguments to say that they're good. There are times when they are not bad, but I would never argue that they are, are good. In fact, just ahead of the show, I asked people, you know, what do you think about monopolies and oligopolies uh, and, and if you believe they're bad? And like you, 48% said yes, they're bad. Uh, 13% said no. Uh, 27% said depends, which is a good answer. 13% says what are they again? Uh, and the reason we're discussing them is because a lot of people are starting to look at Facebook as a monopoly. It certainly has a significant presence in uh, yeah. Uh, Facebook, hold on a second. Um, face uh, monopoly. All right, uh, so explain yourself. That's okay, fine. so and see skeptical face. Okay. Good. No, that's absolutely fair. Because again, Facebook, we's with you. They say we're not a monopoly, but people are arguing, given their their presence and and and, and dominant position in social media, advertising, personal messaging, and as a significant news distribution channel that they control a lot of people. And Mary Mika does this sort of internet trend. She just confirmed this evening, half the planet now. So 3.6 billion people have access to the internet. Facebook's quarter one results said they have 2.2 billion people using it every month. Over 1 billion every single day. In many countries, it's the only way you connect to the internet. And so while they say we're not publishers, you know, we just allow people to post things to our platform. When there's a billion people accessing your platform daily, it's really hard to regulate what they say. Even worse, what some people choose to promote. And that's kind of how Facebook got into a position where people were asking these questions. Would anybody really care if one company was the sole provider of all pictures of children shared to loving grandparents and, and, and parents? Probably not. But it's the other messages that have been shared, the harmful, destructive fake messages that have got people saying, hang on, this is a real tough job. And they acknowledge it's a hard job to regulate. And does Facebook have the ability to regulate themselves in this regard? And that's the reason why it's sort of a, 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 you know up for discussion. And it's so interesting that you've got entrepreneurial businesses which start out, in the case of Facebook, we saw the movie, the dorm room, the, the Winklefoss brothers, um, the fight that ensued, and then the gradual dominance and the, the terribly clever thinking which led to the creation of Facebook and established its dominance. Bill Gates, you know, software, you know, home use software didn't exist before Bill Gates created Windows, or not certainly not a usable um, software. And Bill Gates then um, got severely criticised in antitrust authorities around the world. So, oh, Microsoft is taking over the world, and there was a, a natural reaction to that. I mean, there's so much free software about all over the world, and that sort of seems to have dissipated. Do we really have a Facebook problem? Well, this is the question. And, uh, you know, it's not just Facebook in, in the modern era. Amazon has got charges to say, hey, you've gotten too dominant and things could get bad. Google has been fined for its abuse of its dominant position with regards to uh, um, display ads in, in Europe. Uh, just about all of the large companies have it. Microsoft wasn't just uh, challenged for being too dominant and, uh, and having become a monopoly. They were told they were supposed to break apart and they managed to avoid that. That was in the 2000s. And if, and if you go back to how Microsoft got to be dominant, well, they got that because Bill Gates amended some software, created DOS, and was clever enough to license it to IBM, who then put it on all of their machines. IBM themselves were a monopoly 
in the 50s when they decided to use their dominant position from previous times to take over the electronic tabulation and computer markets. But before that, they were in you know, mechanical tabulation uh, that they used and they would lease machines. They wouldn't let you buy the machines. They wouldn't let anybody start to repair the machines and they used, well, not very specific paper cards. They were just paper cards, but it was their paper cards and you had to buy theirs. Uh, or else, you know, tough luck. You can't use the machines. Kodak was was one of those who, who at one point owned the film, owned the cameras, processed the film. They owned everything. And people are like, hang on, this is this is not a great thing. But if you want to go back to where it kind of kicks off, and to be fair, businesses have always tried to get dominant. So that's that's not a new thing. In fact, there's some Roman references to what they needed to do. But it really became tricky after the first industrial revolution. And most subsequent industrial revolutions have seen a new wave of new markets, huge change, and opportunities for people to dominate or, or take on these positions. In the first industrial revolution was the start of the railroads. And they were a mess. Everybody tried to operate their own little stretch of track. And it was completely unprofitable. And as only people started consolidating them all together, that you started creating these really really big, powerful companies who effectively, when they owned the transport networks, they really could run economies. The same thing happened with the telegraph system, the telephone systems, uh, just about every single one subsequent to that. As I mentioned, IBM with the computing, third industrial revolution, oil, second industrial revolution, and now fourth industrial revolution, in re- revolution. we're waiting to see who's going to be the players in it. And it's fair to say Facebook, with over 60 acquisitions, including things in AI and future technologies, Oculus Rifts and the things, could be one of those very dominant players. Yeah, but the history of dominance teaches us also that markets find a way of self-regulating over time. Sure, these guys dominate and they make lots of money, but eventually they run out of steam, they run out of ideas, they become too big, they become too unwieldy, they they lose their way. And all of the examples that you've mentioned have, to a greater or lesser extent have done that, haven't they? Uh, what an intelligent comment to say that they run out of steam because that is it when steam got replaced <laughs> by oil. You see, I'm a genius. That's, that is how it goes. Uh, you're absolutely right. I just wonder though because I had to actually look up some of these terms and not everybody necessarily understands what they are. So the monopolies, we've got a bit of grief com- coming for us here. That means one seller. And then the oligopoly means a few sellers. And that's what most of these things are. It's very rare that you have a complete monopoly. But then one I wasn't aware of was uh, were monopsonies. Monopsony? Yeah, a monopsony is when there's only one buyer. And in South African context, I think ESCOM is a unique position for being both a monopoly and a monopsony. It is the only one that can sell us energy in the country effectively. And if you consider the coal producers and the independent power producers, they're the only ones who can buy it. So they happen to be, you know, the perfect monopoly. And South Africa is awash with them. And it's not to say that they're bad. And, and this is the kind of case that makes them. Back in 1994, South Africa uh, issues licenses uh, for two cell phone networks. Had they decided to say, no, let's make this fair. Everybody gets to open a mobile network, you probably would have seen a lot more people focused on urban areas where the profits are good and not not, not so much building networks to go out to the more rural areas or, or less served areas. We might even had a situation where you'd have a company that's operating just in Johannesburg so that when you have to fly from Joburg to Cape Town, you need to get yourself a new SIM because you've got to use a different network because of how it was regulated. In that case, the size of the markets sometimes do make sense for you to have a relatively large player that can reduce costs and look after you know the, the, the very expensive things that come with running a business. Uh, and they're kind of good when the economy is small or you know, are bad. The hassle is when things change, like any large company, they're not good at handling change and they certainly hate it when somebody tries to threaten them. And this is kind of why it helps for all of us to, to be aware when you know, we're in a position that's, that's not looking so good for how to deal with it. Now, the, the, the challenge has been, I suppose as well, that when a large company in a country became a problem, the country could create a rule uh, using its own legislation It had its own uh, oversight over companies operating inside them to, 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 to allow that to happen. 
with so many more multinationals, again, each of these subsequent industrial revolutions have sort of globalized the world, that governments aren't big enough to regulate a lot of these companies. And there aren't necessarily <laughs> enough world bodies yeah. to look after them either. So the World Trade Organization officially should be where some of this gets taken care of. Uh, the European Union, as the collection of governments, have shown some ability. Uh, China is kind of unique. It still runs everything with sort of an iron fist. And I don't think that's necessarily the best way to go either. But if there's a disconnect between uh, governments who want to be, maybe be a little too lax with how to regulate these things or companies feel themselves to be uh, too enabled to regulate these things, that's when the, the problems start, start arising. And so while I'll agree, uh, you know, for the most part, having companies grow, having them get the best out of the, the economies of scale is good. We need better sort of uh, people working on their own forms of innovation around regulations. Let's not always treat regulation as something that comes way after it's necessary as a sort of wait till the barn door closes. And, and for anybody who possibly watched some of the testimony Mark Zuckerberg was giving, certainly in the U.S. Uh, uh, testimony for the Senate, a lot of those senators really probably were still getting their head around IBM's you know, computational abilities back from the 50s rather than understanding exactly how things like the Internet uh, is operating. And, and I might mention as an aside – Tomorrow, South Africa's parliament is having a session on the fourth industrial revolution and how it will affect us. And it will be interesting to see the level of understanding that the people taking part will have yeah. and the degree to which the rest <laughs> of us will be able to get our heads around it yeah. so we're not all left wondering or only find out after the fact that, yeah, companies like Facebook were really very big monopolies. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the, the, the discussion around monopolies because there's so many contradictions built into this thing. I remember Chris Becker telling me at Davos three years ago and we were having a chat and he was saying, you know, what, and we're getting really screwed over by Google when it comes to search. And he was talking about in Europe where um, they are in the, uh, in the retail space, online retail, and their searches don't come up at the top of Google as they should. And he was feeling really hard done by. And then you've got multi-choice, which has been... The hmm. dominant player in South Africa, which is owned by Naspers, <laughs> which is saying, hold on a second, you need to relegate these these clowns who are coming along and stealing our lunch, uh, Netflix and, and the like, because broadband is making it possible for competition and it's not something we'd considered, oh dear, please save us from ourselves. And this is the same holding company, which on the one hand is berating monopolies it perceives as being dangerous to its business, and then on the other side is trying to protect its dominant position in its home market. Um, you know, nobody says this stuff is simple, I suppose. No, and to be fair, we have a slightly protected uh, sort of environment, even though the SABC is the, is the real monopoly. Uh, the fact that broadcasting is licensed means the regulations allow for there to be, to be some competition, but not so much that it harms our ability to actually run you know, a, a viable company. And, and that's that kind of balance that you, you do want to get. And, and perhaps maybe just also worth mentioning that the three ways that this gets abused is either by the prevention or the regulation of prices through cartels and collusion. And as consumers, we definitely hate that. By just buying up any smaller competitors or potential future competitors, um, that is definitely something that Facebook and Google and many of these other large companies have, have sought to do, or engage in practices that harm other ones. And the dirty tricks campaigns that companies can pull is certainly, there's a long, long list of them, and, and, and many companies will be willing to do so. So when we can spot things like that, that's when we need to act. Colin Cullis, Business Unusual, our Business Unusual correspondent in our Cape Town studio this evening. Colin Cullis, always on a Wednesday. The Money Show. The Big Five.
The Big Five this evening brought to you by Worksman's Attorneys, your legal specialist for success for the last century, keeping you close for 100 years. Visit worksmans.com. Now, it may surprise you to learn that Italy, the home of Alfa Romeo and Lamborghini, is Europe's fourth biggest economy, but it's an economy in crisis. Italy's got a vibrant, some might say a dysfunctional democracy, more than 60 governments since the end of World War II. The economics correspondent for the BBC World Service, Andrew Walker, on the line to us this evening. A quick background if you would, Andrew Walker. Why and how did Italy get itself into this mess? Is it all about the politics? It is fundamentally a political crisis, yes, which has um, significant economic ramifications. Um, So Italy had an election back in March and two anti-establishment parties, the the League, as they're known, and the Five Star Movement, between them have a majority in Parliament. Um, Now, they as would you expect in the circumstances they uh, came up with a proposal for a new government and what happened was the president of Italy um, who's not associated with either of those parties vetoed their choice of economy minister and the reason for that was because the man concerned Paolo Savona had in the past advocated Italy leaving the Eurozone. He has, on one occasion at least, called it a German prison. And the president's view was that because the idea of leaving the Eurozone had not featured as a, an explicit theme in the election campaign, and it was far too big a change for Italy to go through without having had a proper public debate on it. So that's where we are now, and we currently have no effective functioning government and in the financial markets people have been getting really rather worried about whether we might be looking at the prospect of Italy leaving the euro they don't think it's by any means um, a high probability but it can no longer be discounted and they also have I think some concerns about some aspects of the economic policy that these two anti-establishment parties would like to pursue. Hey, but from an, from an Italian perspective, I mean, a dramatic increase in the last few days even, never mind the last few weeks or the last six decades, Italy's financial strains are really beginning to show themselves. They certainly are. Um, and there are a number of places you can look to see it. The, the stock market is, is one example where there have been substantial falls. You wouldn't say catastrophic by any means, but... But it's clear that, that that's one clear indication that investors in the markets are worried. We've also seen the euro weaken a bit. Um, and particularly striking has been some of the increase in the financial markets in the cost of borrowing for the Italian government. There's been really quite pronounced and, um, and rapid increases there. Now, we're not at levels by any stretch of the imagination where those borrowing costs have become unaffordable for the Italian government, but the uh, and it certainly I wouldn't wouldn't describe the situation as one where what's happening in in the Italian government debt market is flashing red, but it certainly is beginning to flash amber a bit. Signs there that financial markets are getting worried but not panicking. When Greece went through its wobbles, what, two, three years ago, the the threat of contagion was very real. Is this more contained then than the Greek crisis purported to be when it first started? Um, Well, we've certainly not seen the degree of contagion that we saw when the Eurozone crisis um, really was at its worst. This was around 2011 and 2012 when... there were were real genuine concerns in the markets and in political circles as well, frankly, that there might be a number of countries finding themselves 
um, having to leave the Eurozone. We're not in that situation, but you've seen a little bit of uh, the impact on other countries. So government borrowing costs have increased for Greece, although even there they are still reasonably affordable. And you've also seen an increase for Portugal, um, another country that was um, that was particularly affected and needed to get a bailout also for Spain, which was, again, a country that had a bailout in the past, although to a degree there, that is not just about contagion, it's also about some uh, political problems that Spain is having in and of itself. So, uh, if I can push the contagion analogy perhaps a little bit too far, we were seeing you know, a really quite serious uh, disease spreading around the Eurozone earlier on in 2011 and 2012. It's a more like a nasty cold at the moment, and nothing very serious. I mean, the Brexiteers must be having a meal of making a meal of this one. I mean, with Britain headed um, full speed toward the end of March next year, when uh, when the Brexit and a deal has to be in place, come hell or high water, Britain will be leaving the European Union as things stand at the moment. Um, there must mm. be quite a lot of cheerleading from many of the pro-Brexit uh, crowd in the United Kingdom, certainly for Italy to come on board and to help break up the European Union? Well, there are some people who've been suggesting that the um, that Italy is now at the early stages of a process that is going to lead to it leaving the Euro. That's, there are some uh, um, some very serious, one or two very serious economists who think that, that is likely to be the case. Um, and legally, it has to be said, it, it does appear to be the case that it's very difficult to see a way in which you can leave the euro and not also leave the European Union. Um, so, yeah, there, there certainly are some voices who would like to see, in Britain, who would like to see a wider breakup of the, the European Union. I have to say, in the financial markets, people don't think that Italy is, on balance, likely to be heading for the exit door of the eurozone. One of the reasons for that is that... Um, uh, politically, um, the Italian public, although they have become very seriously disaffected with the country's own political establishment, they are for the most part in favour of the Eurozone. So if there were to be an explicit commitment on the part of, um, of some of these anti-establishment parties to take Italy out of the Eurozone, um, they would put at risk the support of a significant part of the country's electorate. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see today things seem to be a little calmer on the on the Italian front. I mean, one, one wonders whether or not this sort of uh, sort of passes over for now, and a week or two from now, it's all a bit of a bad dream. Or does this have legs? Well, that's always a possibility, I suppose. But um, but at the same time, you have to bear in mind that um, that there were. I think most economists would, would say that there's not really any question that there are some significant weaknesses in the way that the Eurozone was put together in the first place. Uh, there's been a reform, reform program in the wake of the crisis that has made some progress, intended to remedy some of those defects. But I think you'll find very few people saying that the, that the work is completed. And President Macron of France has made his own proposals for trying to deepen the Eurozone's integration to address some of those issues. So having said all that, I think it's fair to say that there are still some intrinsic vulnerabilities in the, in, in the Eurozone. So I wouldn't want to put 
too much of a bet on the idea that this is a, a storm that has now brewed over. My thanks to you uh, on The Money Show this evening. Andrew Walker, the BBC World Service economics correspondent, on the line to us from London for that perspective on the troubles in Italy. The big five things you need to know this Wednesday evening. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. So I'm going to declare this up front. Hand up. Where's the Bible? Put the hand on the Bible, virtual Bible. Um, I must declare up front tonight, Shapeshifter is the chair of the company I work for. So I stand up and I've polished my shoes and I'm wearing a tie. Uh, some of that is true. But yes, the part that is true is that Pumzile Langeni, chair of Afropulse, is also the chair of Prime Media. She serves on many boards. Um, she's been an economic advisor to the Minister of Minerals and Energy. Which minister was that? Um, that's Minister Sunjika. That's a long time ago. It is. That's about five ministers ago. Six. We had a lot of minerals ministers. How was that? How was that? I mean, advising government on policy. Well, I wasn't advising government as much as I was advising the minister. Um, It was a very interesting time, more so because at that point in time, the part that she drove very hard over and above the mining aspect was renewable energy. Um, the minister was very passionate around the Inga project, um, introducing renewable energy in South Africa. And at the time, you will appreciate renewable energy had just made its announcement to the global stage. It was uh, very pricey, but it is something that did show very early on that it would be a critical component of every society. Doesn't it disappoint you massively that we've sort of taken three steps forward and two steps back and then five forward and four back? We're making progress, but boy, it's painful. Well, I've got to say, you know, it would have been preferred if we had continued on certain journeys. Um, However, life itself is a journey, so you will find winding roads everywhere as long as you ultimately find your way. Yeah, so you've got to be quite philosophical then <laughs> to deal uh, with the state because there are so many different forces. And, of course, ESCOM, as the nation's utility, it is state-owned. It's got a problem in that we are consuming less of its product. It doesn't like the fact that there's competition coming. And the competition's got to be inevitable, surely. Well, the issue of competition is one that must come. In every um, performing society and economy, competition is a key component of it. Um, from an ESCOM perspective, probably one of the most critical elements has been the very lackluster economic environment that we're all aware of. Um, so hopefully with some of the measures that are being put in place and being considered, we should see an uplift in um, demand, which hopefully will assist uh, ESCOM in turning around its ship. However, with that said, and the macro playing a very critical element, we do know that there are a number of housekeeping issues, mm. significant <laughs> ones. Housekeeping, um, is a, is, that's the un, today's understatement of the day. I think we should have a prize. Um, but yes, uh, there's a lot of corruption. It's rotten to the, it's been rotten to the core and they've got a big job cleaning it up. No, no. I mean, that's a very well-made point, Bruce. Mm. Um, so my guest this evening is Pumzile Langen. You think, who's Pumzile Langeni? And so we wondered, who's Pumzile Langeni? So we went and we did our research and we discovered very little. One thing we did discover is that you have now, you're doing another tour of duty um, and helping the president, Sir Ramaphosa. Do you know him well? Um, no, I don't know the president at all. You don't? So how and why did he select you then to be one of these special economic envoys, somebody with a huge burden of responsibility on your shoulders, along with Trevor Manuel, along with Mkwisi Jonas, uh, along with Jacko Marie and you, um, to go out into the world and raise $100 billion over five years? Because you're one of the chosen. 
Well, the way you say it, Bruce, I should be running from the studio. You should be. You've got work to do. Why are you wasting your time here? Um, no, but it's, it's a critical job that you've been asked to participate in. And you don't know the guy. And he's asked you. It's quite, I thought it was quite a personal request. It's interesting. Well, the president actually did call me to make the request. Um, so he did that in person. But in terms of me knowing him personally, no. Um, I was recommended to him as well as a few other people. Did Tommy Lyorka, uh, who, 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 who recommended you? Do you know? Who do you blame for recommending you? <laughs> um, it was um, a gentleman who is affiliated with the BBC. Okay. Um, so my name was... Um, forwarded to the president and from that then um, the president had my resume I'm sure he considered a couple of issues and from there I got the call okay tell us about that resume because it's not available online you've been very good at um, uh, covering your tracks on the internet which is impressive in the 21st century you you, you strike me as quite a private person well I pretty much am um, at least you I were to be. until you came on to shapeshifters <laughs> on the money show yes um, so my resume, sure, uh, where do I begin? Um, probably let me pick it up from my work environment. So I started off my career working as an investment consultant for R&B fund managers. Um, this was after doing my degree at the University of Natal, Durban at the time. Um, what, de what degree did you do? I did a Bachelor of Commerce majoring mm -hmm. in the Big Four. So the whole thing was to become an accountant. I did a very short stint at Deloitte for a two-month period, and I realized that um, it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. It's, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's a bit like, I don't know, eating uh, a food that's got a particular, you know, if you're going to try more bunny worms for the first time, you're either going to like them or you're going to not like them. Auditing is a bit like that. No, no, it was. I mean, great career. Um, you know, I've got to say, though, I have never looked back since making that decision. After my stint at uh, R&B, I had already done my stockbroking exams with VITS, uh, which I hadn't used. I was fortunate enough to be introduced to Kofi Fordwa, who was the MD of a new stockbroking firm, Real Africa Geolink Securities. Yes, RAD. Which yeah. was under the Real Africa Geolink or RAD, RAD Holdings um, umbrella. And that, that's where Sim Chabalala came from. Yes. He'd been in Real Africa Geolink and he moved from there to Standard Bank and we know the rest of that story. A hundred percent. So that was the beginning of my career, so to speak, um, and that was more purposeful and by design. So I did my tour of duty as a junior equities trader, waking up very early in the morning, uh, did wonderful trades. Um, from there, I left stockbroking. This was probably three years later. A friend and I, two friends rather, we opened a meat delivery business. Um, it's a very long story, but it was... That's fine, we have time. Um, it was very insightful, great insights, many lessons learned. Um, and when people talk about cash being king, Phew. it is not a lie. It is actually true, especially when you're running a data's book that one day renders you cashless. Oof. So thereafter, um, feeling very, what can I say? Uh, lessons learned, but of course, some hard lessons. But it's amazing, isn't it, how many people go from the corporate world and go into this uncharted water where you've never worked for yourself. You've got all the skills in the world. You've got all the book learning in the world. And you just come up against people who are just more streetwise or a bit slicker or just a bit <laughs> devious or, or downright crooks. And, and, you, and you get screwed over. No, you do. And you become very street smart. Um, so the one thing about it was it was a... It was a phenomenal lesson um, that, you know, 
people in business, um, it's not like a corporate environment. There's a lot more to do, a lot more required of the entrepreneur. But a critical element and probably what we learned about ourselves was that we're self-starters. We are self-motivated, um, very brave to go into the big, bad world um, and see as to what we can make of that opportunity. Uh, so the, how long did the meat business last? I mean, the meat we had it for business. 18 months. Um, it was a very, it was a wonderful um, 18 months. Um, but of course, from a financial perspective, I probably think it was the worst investment. But from a school of life, probably the best investment I could have made. Mm. Uh, and, um, and it's good to have those lessons and to put them behind you as quickly as possible. Um, how old were you when that sort of came to an end? I was 20... Um, in your 20s? I was in my 20s, yeah. Uh, but it's good to get that... Uh, I mean, it's good to get it out of the way. I did, <laughs> and, very and, early. And, and get those scars because it gives you time to heal. Yeah. Well, but the benefit, though, was when we branched into our own business, already one had had a few years in corporate. Um, mm. So I had an established career. And when I decided to go back to work, it was a case of dusting up the CV, dusting up the skills, a bit wiser, I can tell you. And um, at that point, I joined Standard Equities as a sales equity sales trader. I used to deal a lot with institutions. Um, from there, I got a call from Andy Mazwai. We started, um, I joined him in starting Mazwai Securities. Moved well, okay, so PGM. I mean, stockbroking is in your blood. Oh, I mean, yes. And do you still operate a, an account of your own? Do you still dabble in markets? Well, the problem with being a stockbroker is you're so used to being the person that's actually doing the trading that essentially probably one has got trust issues when it comes <laughs> to that point. Um, I haven't dabbled in the market because it's one of those things where you know, having been part of it, it's very difficult to let go of your portfolio as well as your trading. So mm -hmm. there is a little bit that I do on that front, but I must be honest, I don't do as much as I should. But, but the world has changed so wonderfully, hasn't it? I mean, you can, you go now and, and check out your portfolio and put in your, your, your offers and you can put in your sell offers and you can just leave it up to the magic of the internet to resolve tomorrow and you know, come back and check on it later. Um, but you strike me as being a bit more controlling than that. Well, I guess, theory, I suppose theoretically you can, but having seen how the market moves and volatility within a space of a minute, um, I would be most uncomfortable to live it all to people online. Yeah. Okay. So you like the old school, more old fashioned sort of approach to this. You could say chat with a broker is always nice. It is. It is important. Have you got a broker? Do you have one? Do they know your background? Are they scared of you? I do have a broker. Um, I don't think they know, well, they don't know me, say for the conversations we've had on the phone. I've never told them what I do. I think that would be very, it wouldn't be progressive at all. Um, so I've kept it very neutral and they hardly ever hear from me. Okay. Is that a good thing? No, it means they're doing a good job. They're doing a good job. Excellent. Um, now, getting into media, how did that happen? Sure. Um, I was invited to serve on the board of Prime Media, um, and this was a few years ago. That was a connection with the Mine Workers Investment Company, correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, I sit as a, at that point in time, I sat as a director of the MIC, an independent non-executive. I was invited to sit on the board of uh, Prime Media, um, and I've got to say, it's been a love affair ever since. Mm. What is it about media that, that gets you? I mean, you've gone from stockbroking to media. Uh, they're fundamentally different very different businesses, but there's one common element, fast-paced. If you're sleeping on the job, within seconds, your world has changed. 
So probably the most alluring thing about media is the constant, the change, um, some of the new things that are coming um, the company's way, but also the very important thing that in the end, media is also about people. And what I learned about stockbroking was you could have the greatest graphs, you could have the greatest models, but if you didn't have people skills, let's just say it was limiting to quite an extent. Well, certainly is. Pumzile Langeni, chair of Afropulse and also the chair of Prime Media. Um, that's the declaration up front. She's the boss. And that's why I shot my shoes. Uh, we're talking this evening all about a life, a diverse life, an interesting life, a life that could have gone the way of the audit profession, but she recovered from that fairly quickly, took just two months. Um, we did some stockbroking, went into business for herself, came out battered and bruised, went back into stockbroking, um, and has found her way um, into media ownership and into chairing Prime Media. I want to find out, though, in the next bit, and you may have some questions for Pumzi Lelangeni, um, give us a call on 011 how you go about with a couple of people you don't know particularly well, but you have to cooperate with them to raise $100 billion in direct investment for the South African economy because the president phoned and asked and you couldn't say no. We'll talk about that in a moment. The Money Show. Shape shifters. Pumzile Langeni has been tasked by the president to save the country. How does that feel? Very, very... Um, Your eyes just got really big, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Where it was paraphrased was most unexpected. Um, it's, um, you know, it's a, an opportunity for me as a South African to show up to see what I can do in assisting the president as well as us as South Africans realize our goal. And certainly when I was asked... I never felt that I could say anything, but yes, Mr. President, I'm here to serve. Did you ask who else was on the team? Did the president disclose who you'd be working with? Do you know the other people on the team? Well, I do know the other people on the team. Um, I met Jaco many years ago. Because you worked at Santa Bank for a bit, yeah? So you would have been aware of him. I was too junior. Um, yes, I was aware of him, mm. but I met him during discussions on the Financial Services Charter. Okay. Um, Trevor, I had uh, seen um, and attended a couple of events when he was a minister. Um, the BC I only knew now, and Trudy, um, who advises the president, I'd only seen when reading her articles. Okay. So, and I didn't ask who the other members of the team were. But, but that's, I mean, it's, it, it feels like quite a big adventure. I mean, it's a huge responsibility, but at the same time, you've got a blank slate. Nobody's been asked to do this before. It's a very clear mandate. And it's kind of, so how are you going to do it? Have you had that meeting yet? We have had a couple of meetings um, and we have worked on the how. Um, and certainly now it is implementing from that how to the actual delivery. It will, as the president said, involve a lot of traveling, um, but equally it involves a lot of interactions with local business um, both South African businesses as well as international businesses that are operating in South Africa. We have had an influx of uh, visitors, um, the Japanese delegation, mm -hmm. uh, delegation from India. Um, that has certainly been, been very helpful in us engaging with um, investors in South Africa as well as potential investors. I mean, you come in here this evening wearing your South Africa flag. It's, the, it's what people do in Davos. It's done all the road shows that uh, Pravin Gordon and Kobisi Jonas used to do and do it. would take business leaders with them on the road shows to go talk to the ratings agencies, to go talk to the investors. It's sort of becoming part of your uniform too, I suspect. 
100%. Yeah, I mean, the South African scarf, it stands out all over the place. And um, it, it's a great identifier and it's a great sort of unifier, I suppose. And it constantly reminds you of the magnitude of the task at hand. No, it certainly does. And walking into meetings and people asking me the question, so how much has been raised, always ensures that uh, this significant responsibility is not forgotten. Okay, it's been a month. How much has been raised? <laughs> Um, nothing yet, I take it. Um, we'll leave it to the president to unveil. Okay, the president must announce. The president must announce. Um, are you a political person? Um, as a South African, I'm very politically conscious. Yeah. Um, certainly, I keep track of what happens politically. Um, but are you a player? Are you a political player? No, I'm not a political player. Isn't that important in this in this world of sort of trans, you're transcending public and private sector? You, you've got streetwise, you've got business streetwise. Do you need to be politically streetwise for this, or do you have cover in the form of Kubisi um, Jonas, who, who's, fought a, who's fought a political street battle in his time as a Trevor Manuel? Well, I guess in our role, we're not expected to be politically savvy. And probably the attraction was that we are largely private sector, um, at least from my perspective. Um, and as you rightfully say, um, the team does have political heavyweights. And certainly, we do have the president's support as the person who has appointed us to embark on this uh, task. So I don't really worry about um, the politics. But of course, one has got to be very sensitive and be very aware to the political dynamics as well as the political environment itself. What happens if you don't get it right? What happens if we don't get the billions that we need to help restart this economy? Then it would be a failing of 55 million people. Mm. Um, and it is probably the one thing that, you know, South Africa can least afford. Um, you know, when one just looks at the fiscus, the budget that was unveiled um, in February, but also preceding that, the statement um, at the time of the release of the medium-term budget statement, what is very evident is we are at a, we sit in a very precarious position. Um, fiscally, we're not in good shape. It's going to take a bit of time for us to be able to turn the ship. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the social aspect of it, there's a lot of um, social discourse, um, there's a lot of frustration, and at the root of it really is ordinary South Africans wanting to be able to be the masters of their own destiny. Well, having a, having a stake in the future. I mean, it's a, the most basic human need is to feel a sense of ownership of the country in which you live. This is very correct. And this is why um, from us as a team, but also for every South African, we've got to pull together and ensure that this initiative succeeds. And one of the great ironies, of course, of South Africans and particularly South African corporates has been this huge desire. I mean, in a slow economy, you've got to diversify and people have globalised. But there have been various phases in South Africa's history where people have been running for the door and people get stuck in the door and um, as the currency depreciates and people panic and this is the end and then things pull back and everyone calms down again. But one of the great ironies is we want foreign investors to come to South Africa and bring their $100 billion how much are you saying to South African business leaders, match it pound for pound, euro for euro, dollar for dollar? You want foreigners to come and invest here. Yeah? Put your money where your mouth is. Well, Bruce, as it said, charity begins at home. Mm -hmm. um, and that is why there's a lot of focus in engaging South African business, uh, both listed as well as unlisted businesses, because we realize that if we are saying to the international community, um, or people outside of South Africa come and invest, we've got a great story to tell, 
the first question they'll ask is, well, if your story is so great, how is it that your fellow compatriots um, don't stand behind that story? So it is very important from a messaging perspective, but also as part of um, South Africa's own social um, construct, so to speak, that we've got government, we've got business, we've got labor, as well as society pulling in the same direction. It is absolutely critical that we show uh, support from the South African um, public, as well as South African companies in particular. And I've got to say the reception from companies as well as individuals has been very positive and highly overwhelming. What what are the big questions that foreigners are asking you? I mean, is policy certainty strikes me as the most common question and the president gets it, but he's only got two hands and one head. He can't do it all himself. So as you're saying, policy uh, certainty is a, is a very topical issue and it is not necessarily the domain of internationals. It's something that South African companies are asking as well. Um, you know, the whole macro issues that you alluded to earlier, um, how we're going to turn the economy around, um, what are the interventions that are being put in place to address some of the issues that have come to light, especially around corruption, um, so, you know, the theme between internationals and South Africans to a large degree does talk to each other. However, probably some of the concerns that South Africans have um, are not necessarily big red flags to the international community because they've seen those before. Mm. So as um, one institution was sharing with me, you know, the issue of land is a very big issue, topical issue. But some of the international counterparts have a different perspective because they have seen land reform across a number of emerging markets. And in the end, it comes down to the how. Yeah, it is the how. It's absolutely the how. And the when and the soon. I mean, do you, are you, you've got to be feeling optimistic about the country. I mean, the country's taken a fundamentally different shift in a very short period of time. In May 2018, six months ago, we lived in a very different country. Very much so. Um, I believe in the future of South Africa. I think we still have a lot of legs. We have a lot to offer. Um, Our role in the continent is something that we can um, revisit as leaders that we have been in the past. And certainly, you know, if one goes back to the heydays of uh, 2010, not to mention the wonderful uh, time of the start of our democracy in 1994, the one thing that is very evident about South Africans is when there's a common goal and there's a good feel and there is trust in the leadership, you see a very progressive society. Let's leave it there. Pumzile Langeni, the chair of Afropulse, the chair of Prime Media, and one of the envoys appointed by the president with the big task. It's not an insurmountable task, but it is a big task. Let's see if you can do it in three years and not five, because we need you to raise the next hundred billion in the remaining two. Um, part of the one of the envoys who has been asked by the president to get a hundred billion dollars in, in investment for South Africa over the next five years. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. That's it from the Money Show team for this Wednesday evening. Tomorrow's Money Show, lining up the guests already as we speak. We'll talk diamonds. We'll talk all of the big money stories of the day. Till then, good night.